You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amit, one of the PhD students of the program. Just a few days ago, the World Cup ended in spectacular fashion, with Argentina besting France in what was widely regarded as one of the greatest finals in World Cup history. While much excitement surrounded the finale, the tournament as a whole was surrounded even more by controversy, in large part due to the cup being held in Qatar, a semi-constitutional kingdom that veers towards authoritarian. While FIFA would point to the diplomatic potential of bringing football to the Middle East, observers have widely criticized the way in which the World Cup has effectively been used as a means of sport-washing Qatari authoritarianism. To be sure, the 2022 Cup saw some incredible matches, but it also saw allegations of bribery among players and officials alike, and a staggering death toll among the migrant workers brought in to build the Cup's infrastructure in Qatar. And sadly, surrounding all of this was a deafening silence in public discourse. But this is nothing new. From the Olympics being held in Berlin at the height of Nazi supremacy to Vladimir Putin welcoming the World Cup to Russia in 2018, illiberal states and international sports have made for strange but pretty consistent bedfellows. How have authoritarian regimes used international sporting events to achieve political ends? How have global athletic bodies like the IOC and FIFA become political entities unto themselves? And what are the implications for a state like Canada, which is currently in the midst of its own athletic scandal with the recent revelations surrounding Hockey Canada? For the fifth round of our annual Politics of the Game podcast, we're going to discuss these issues and more with Professor Aaron Ettinger. Professor Ettinger is an associate professor with Carleton's Department of Political Science, specializing in international relations, international political economy, and Canadian foreign policy. Professor Ettinger, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is like the annual conversation we have about the politics of the game. And it's been almost a year since the last time we spoke. And I guess a good way to start off is where are the politics of the game right now compared to the last time we did the podcast? Uh, well, if you're a pessimist, it would be roughly the same as they were about a year, 12 months ago. Uh, there have been some changes here and there, some movement on some stories. Uh, but, I, you know, if I, I don't want to start so cynical, but, you know, I, I, I constantly go back to the phrase often reported by the sports journalist Tony Kornheiser that the answer to all your questions is money. I mean, right now we're in the midst of FIFA 2022. I think we're kind of close to the end of it. And there's a lot of politics there, particularly related around the fact that it's in Qatar. What does it mean for Qatar to host the World Cup? What does it mean for FIFA to have it there? Oh, for Qatar, it is a it is a remarkable kind of public relations coup because it gets to put on its best face right it has spent a it has spent gobs of money cleaning up its you know cleaning up its act as it presents itself to the outside world and it gets to throw this month-long block party for everybody around the world and everybody gets to see how much wealth it has and all that kind of stuff which is a wonderful thing for you know an authoritarian monarchy seeking to modernize its economy and integrate itself into the global economy even deeper so you know that's the that that would be my political take on the World Cup. As for what happens on the pitch, 
as they say, the pitch, not the field. Uh, frankly, I couldn't care less. I'm not a soccer fan. <laughs> it's baseball and basketball for me. Ted Lasso didn't connect with you. No welcome oh, it's, it's, in your life. Oh, Ted Lasso connected with me because it's not about soccer. It's about mental health. <laughs> it's about realizing the limits of your abilities and reconciling yourself to yourself and figuring out how to improve your mental health. Also explaining your emotions. So, you know, you can imagine a bunch of soccer fans liking this show and getting a little bit of an education in how to treat yourself well. One hopes. One hopes. So a lot of what's been going on there, we've been hearing this term sports washing. And I think the example that's happening in Qatar is a prime example of it. But what is sports washing? Sports washing, real simple. It's about laundering your reputation. We have heard the blank washing phrase in a lot of different contexts with greenwashing in order to make, uh, you know, otherwise environmentally unfriendly companies or products seem more environmentally friendly. Pink washing, breast cancer awareness, all sorts of other forms of red washing, or excuse me, of uh, red washing. I heard that the other day with regards to uh, indigenous politics and reconciliation in Canada. It's a matter of reputation laundering so as to get the stink of previous bad practices out of your reputation. So it's fairly straightforward in that regard. And it's, you know, it's a phrase that is exclusively used as a pejorative, of course. Um, but it's a very convenient kind of stand in for a lot of ideas related to the way public relations intersects with big business, uh, sports, other industries, as it all takes place, you know, plainly in the public eye. So a lot obviously has been said about the Qatari system, but have we seen other states engage in this practice as well? As a Oh, and how? <laughs> and how? I mean, you can go back, you know, you can go back to the ancients, right? right? Let's, uh, you know, let's, let's depoliticize some of these conflicts we have going on in the Aegean uh, by holding games, right? Let's celebrate the death of Achilles's lover by holding games also to distract from this war against Troy that's not going so well. Uh, you know, and then, you know, in the modern Olympic Games, you know, the, the purpose of the modern Olympic movement is to, you know, is to uh, was to generate peace or to foster peace and harmony among at least the European states. And it didn't work out so well, you know, particularly in the ultimate case study is Berlin in 1936, which permitted Nazi Germany to put on a real good face for the rest of the world. Did wonders for them. Similar examples of uh, this kind of sports washing or reputation laundering has a lot, you know, we can point to Tokyo's hosting of the Olympics. I think it was 1952 uh, Munich again in what 1972, something along those lines. I might be getting these dates wrong, but the basic point is that, you know, the two, uh, you know, the two villains of the second world war, look at us. We've been reintegrated and rehabilitated. And here we are back in the world. Once again, all is well. Closer to our times, 2008 is China's big coming out moment, despite, you know, mammoth human rights concerns and authoritarianism. This was an opportunity for China to put on a show for the rest of the world uh, and demonstrate its, you know, enormous capabilities and enormous, you know, power, both hard power and soft power and announce itself on the world as, you know, as having uh, arrived once again. Russia in 2018. Uh, with its World Cup and now Qatar 2022, all sorts of examples in between. You know, this is a giant public relations program 
Uh, and no country would spend the amount of money that it costs to host these mega events if it didn't come with some kind of economic or PR or normative benefit at the end of the day. So those are all really big salient examples, but I'm wondering if any other states who haven't been involved in things like the World Cup or the Olympics are also engaging this, or is this just something that happens with with the FIFAs and the Olympic committees of the world? Yeah, I mean, you can go down the line of, you know, from the mode from like the prestige. Uh, first tier kind of sporting events all down the line. And you can see similar things taking place, right? Games being held for, you know, with a political agenda under it. Go down and go down to like second tier events. These kind of like, imagine like the Commonwealth Games, other regional sporting events. These are less prominent, but still significant opportunities to do a little bit of sports washing uh, all the way down to some of the more obscure you know, sporting events on the calendar. Uh, but, you know, but the one that is the most compelling to me right now is what Saudi Arabia is up to uh, regarding this strange set of behaviors that Saudi Arabia has been undertaking for about seven years now. And Saudi Arabia has been doing its own kind of sports washing of its reputation, not by investing in the FIFAs or the Olympic Games of the world, but with this kind of diverse portfolio of sports properties. Everything from like super obscure chess tournaments to buying, you know, Newcastle United to setting up the live golf tournament as like a major prominent competitor to the PGA Tour out there. You know, over the last, I think, seven or eight years, Saudi Arabia has spent some $1.5 billion at least and probably closer to $2 billion at this point financing sports events, sports properties, both at home and internationally as part of the modernization movement. Since 2016, when Mohammed bin Salman came to power, Saudi Arabia has been undergoing this reform program to modernize its economy away from the creaky old kind of oil economy towards something much more 21st century. Right? Mohammed bin Salman is no uh, is no dummy. He knows that oil has what 20, 30 years left as you know as a foundation of wealth so he recognizes that saudi arabia needs to diversify and modernize and get into global finance and these kinds of investment properties sports investing is part and parcel of what saudi arabia is you know saudi arabia's sports washing uh program and it's all nested within this larger modernization scheme to you know kind of yoke or bring saudi arabia into the 21st century it's fascinating because $2 billion is not a small chunk of change. It's quite a lot of money. So this is about more than just PR then, yeah? Yeah. Uh, it's got to have something. It's, you know, you don't put on snooker events for, you know, $33 million uh, because, you know, because you think anybody's watching, right? No, there's a, there's a larger agenda at play here, uh, which is, you know, in my view, um, normalizing authoritarian capitalism. It is about making doing business with Saudi Arabia or other countries of the same kind of political regime, uh, an ordinary and even desirable thing. We got to remember that Saudi Arabia is spending all of this money, not just to entertain its own people as part of this kind of loosening up of the domestic strictures within Saudi Arabia, but it's also a way of entangling 
uh, international businesses and other countries in Saudi's own interests, in Saudi Arabia's interests. So, you know, it kind of works like this. Saudi Arabia stands up a, a golf tournament, let's say. And when you stand up that golf tournament, you bring in additional sponsors, you bring in additional media interest, you bring in additional uh, commercial interests and ventures. And all of a sudden you have an alignment between, you know, transnational capital and Saudi Arabia's own domestic economic interests. Once you start to bind these interests around the world, Saudi Arabia all of a sudden has a sort of hedge against Western abandonment, right? And there, you know, there's the crux of this all, right? Saudi Arabia is looking to diversify its economic portfolio alongside its, you know, political and security portfolio as it engages in a much more complex world, especially across the Middle East. So, you know, if you can bind and socialize actors in the private sector and in the public sector around the world, and bind them to your own interests, well, all of a sudden, you know, the interests of the West, to simplify, become aligned with the interests of Saudi elites. Uh, and that is a wonderful way of ensuring at least, you know, patronage and perhaps even stability and the longevity of uh, the House of Saud in Riyadh. So is it working? Uh, yes, <laughs> certainly is. Right, Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, its sovereign wealth fund, has been spending money left and right on these kinds of new ventures, and you know, Western businesses are gobbling this stuff up. Sure, there may be some critical coverage in the media about this kind of stuff. You'll get your stories being written about how, you know, Saudi Arabia still hacks Washington Post reporters to death and fights wars in Yemen and all these kinds of nasty things. But, you know, that doesn't get the stain out of the laundry entirely, but it gets it out enough that international businesses still regard the profit to be had as being desirable. Right. Saudi Arabia is by no means a pariah state in the international system. It may be a little bit distasteful when some you know, business dealings end up in the media. But at the end of the day, companies around the world are falling over themselves to be part of this. The you know, $620 billion sovereign wealth fund that Saudi Arabia is looking to splash around. So in terms of all this stuff with Saudi Arabian investment, what are you watching out for? Well, one of the things I'm looking out for is, will Saudi Arabia start buying up North American sports properties, right? They already bought Newcastle United, but some pretty prestigious sports properties are coming onto the market in North America. And here I think of uh, the Washington Commanders of the NFL, the Washington Nationals uh, in Major League Baseball, the Anaheim Angels, even the Ottawa Senators uh, might be up for grabs. Uh, and so it would be very interesting to see if Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund uh, manages to acquire sports properties in North America. That is something that I'm very keenly interested in finding out. Oh, only if Ryan Reynolds blocks them for that last purchase first. Well, he says, you know, he'll be the face if he gets, a, you know, an angel investor. And, you know, who knows? Maybe Mohammed bin Salman and Ryan Reynolds will make this power duo and, 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 and guide the Ottawa Senators back to a non-existent glory. <laughs> Deadpool selling out, that that hurts a little bit. That gets me right here. Uh, well, as a much long-suffering Montreal Canadiens fan, I have zero sympathy. <laughs>
Fair enough. It's fascinating because on one hand, you you kind of expect authoritarian regimes to do this because that's that's how they work. What I always find shocking is that you have supposedly good faith actors who are completely complicit in this. So I, we, we can take the example of FIFA right now with the World Cup. As you've mentioned, it's nothing new. They've done business with, with Russia just in the last World Cup, in fact. What's to be made, in your view, of actors such as FIFA and all this? You know, what role do they have? <laughs> well, okay, FIFA and the IOC are like irredeemably corrupt and morally bankrupt organizations right so those are obvious i mean you you remember the the speech given by the fifa president a few weeks ago in fantino when he said you know he was he was trying to identify with the you know the poor the weak the huddled masses of the world by saying today i am a woman today i am gay today i am disabled as if you know this was persuasive to anybody right i think the you know the moral and political hypocrisy of the ioc and fifa are are too obvious right so we i think we should set those aside and kind of observe more interesting cases of of you know the role of these complicit actors take the nba for example remember in 2019 the nba ran afoul of the censors in china uh, the NBA was going to, they were going to play, I think it was like the Lakers versus the Brooklyn Nets. They were going to play some exhibition games in Beijing. It was going to be broadcast around China, you know, this, this enormous market with an appetite for uh, American basketball. But, you know, Houston Rockets general manager, Daryl Morey, kind of uh, made a mess of things by uh, doing a horrible thing, which is tweeting out pro, you know, support for pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. Well, you know, the Chinese Communist Party slammed on the brakes, kicked the NBA out, tore down the posters on the walls, uh, blacked out the broadcast of the games, and more or less canceled its engagement with the NBA, costing the NBA a ton of money. Now, over the last couple of years the NBA and China have slowly kind of started to reconcile uh, because, well, there is just too much profit to be had exporting NBA products into the Chinese marketplace. That's not exactly what you would expect from a league that prides itself on being the most progressive league, you know, in the world, right? The the NBA has been at the forefront of political activism over the last uh, couple of years, at least since the George Floyd uh, the George Floyd protest, having you know Black Lives Matter emblazoned on the courts, you know protest slogans replacing the player names on their backs during the bubble season, and it's you know it's activism around the world. It is far and away the most progressive sports organization, at least in North America. Uh, well, it's, I guess the WNBA is, but the NBA is falling fairly close behind, reconciling itself with an authoritarian dictatorship that uh, you know more or less enslaves religious and racial minorities, not on brand for the NBA. And yet here we are talking about that kind of stuff. One thing I can't help but think of in all this and the, the, the attempts to, to get the stink out of a bad reputation is that of Hockey Canada. I mean, it's been something so salient to us all, given the place that hockey has in sort of the, the Canadian imaginary and nationalism and such. And I was just wondering uh, how you view their attempts to get that stink out of their bad reputation? Is it something that's working? Can you even do it? Do you have to tear it down and build again? Well, I view I view it poorly. <laughs> I mean, and that's not exact. I'm not exactly going out on a limb by saying that. I mean, this this one is really 
odd because, you know, because Hockey Canada is, you know, it's an organization. It is, you know, technically a not-for-profit organization, but it is a private organization nonetheless with its own internal interests uh, and its, you know, its bureaucratic interests and organizational objectives in the world. From that perspective, it only makes sense that it is doing the things that it has been doing. Right, with this reserve fund that's been set aside to, you know, to to settle out of court sexual assault claims and all that kind of stuff. There's there's stories about how Hockey Canada nickels and dimes uh, amateur players who have been injured on the ice. From you know a Canadian sports sentimental perspective, this is abhorrent. Right, I mean, this is abhorrent nonetheless, but it's abhorrent in the sense that this is the institutional you know version of hockey offending national sensibilities about fair play and uh, truth and honesty and those kinds of those kinds of shibboleths of, am of, of amateur sport that go over so well in Canada. Uh, and yet it's being a, you know, an organizational shark, just as any other company would in the marketplace. In fact, it is, or you know, operating like an ordinary actor. All of this stuff really got a whole lot of play in, in you know, in the Canadian media since the story broke over the summer uh, because it's hockey, because it is Canada's, you know, national sport or pastime or whatever its official designation. And it, it is Canada's, you know, obsession. And, you know, that offended people to their core. It is no surprise then that the, you know, the parliamentary hearings on this, on, on this sordid affair were held by the Heritage Committee, not by, you know, finance or some other oversight kind of department that would make more sense, but it took place in front of a Heritage Committee, which I think says a lot, it says a lot about why this mattered so much. And the answer is because it spoke to something about Canadian identity and values I know, abstract and kind of contradictory as they are, that everybody could get behind. And of course, Hockey Canada came across as the perfect villain with these, you know, kind of bumbling justifications for its own behaviors, which are clearly, you know, if maybe legal, but are certainly skeezy. If Hockey Canada set out to launder its own reputation in all of those hearings, uh, it absolutely failed at doing so. So the last time we had this chat, I think it was spurned by some dumb stuff that Kyrie Irving said, and he's still saying dumb stuff of a different sort, but it's been about a year. We started at the beginning of 2022 having a chat, and now we're ending off 2022 with another chat, and I was just wondering, in terms of the final question in this line, what was the year of 2022 in sports like for you? Well, uh, you know, if we're, if we're measuring the, the passage of time by Kyrie Irving's stupid things being said, and you can use that intro question you know, as a as an evergreen one. 2022 for me, I suppose, was you know monumentally disappointing. We'll say, you know, my Toronto Raptors went out early in the playoffs, and the Blue Jays. Well, let's not talk about what happened in that wild card series in October. It was nice to see the return to full scale in person sporting events. Uh, even if I did get COVID from uh, attending a baseball game in Toronto, but uh, the less said about that, the better. So much of it was much the same, right? With with the kind of political dynamics going on and, and rolling through um, sports media. The new thing that I did take note of was what we talked about with Kyrie Irving and you know the the anti-Semitism that he was 
disseminating uh, before the start of the 2022 season. I think it was in what September or so. That was new and different, and it, as we you know, as you know, as we can see out there in the media, that it is part of a broader and very unfortunate trend out there of anti-Semitism going mainstream uh, in, in in North American, Western European right-wing discourse. Uh, he took his lumps pretty hard on that one. And at least to his credit, he apologized for it. Uh, but that is just one instance in a much, much broader problem out there in the world. And uh, we don't have to mention the names of the people who are uh, making making noise with this kind of stuff. But that was new. And I, I, I took note of that one. And I'm very interested to see how this kind of thing, you know, plays out into 2023. One hopes it just stops sooner rather than later, I guess. One would hope, but you know, we've been saying that for, I don't know, a couple thousand years. Good point. Yeah, too true. So my last question, as always, I'm interested in what you're doing right now. Do you have any projects on the go? What's going on in the life of Professor Ernetker? <laughs> well, uh, uh, tomorrow I am going to have a giant stack of undergraduate final exams dumped upon me. So that is what is standing between me and a little bit of a, of a winter holiday. So that is top of mind right now. But, you know, in the meantime, yeah, I'm, I'm working on this paper about uh, about Saudi sports washing. Got some other stuff on the go about pedagogy, as I seem to do every time we have this kind of conversation. Uh, and I got a, you know, I'm teaching my fourth year class on NATO once again in January. And if you haven't heard, you know, there's been some action on those fronts over the last 12 months. So I got to figure out how to work all of these new things into that curriculum. It's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. Uh, you can always count on world politics providing the sizzle. I just have to serve it up to the students. Well, anyways, this has been a fantastic conversation. As always, thank you for taking the time. Good luck with, with the exams. I have a, a stack waiting for me myself to move through this week, so I feel your pain. <laughs> all right, well, uh, well, we'll have to raise a glass to that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poly sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poly dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci.